Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Welcome to this Reuters Events webinar. We're talking inflation, the energy crisis, volatility, and geopolitical risk in Europe and beyond. My name is Paul Chapman. I'll be moderating the session. I'm the co-head of HC Group, a search and talent intelligence business, and also the host of the HC Insider podcast. Our panelists today are Gerard Reed, co-founder and partner at Alexa Capital, and also co-host of the Redefining Energy podcast, and George Voloshin, head of the Paris branch at Aperio Intelligence. Maybe we can start with you, Gerard. I think what's foremost on everyone's mind at the moment when we talk about the current challenges and crises across the commodity sector, particularly in Europe, is the energy crisis over there. Can you just give us some background to it? And then where are we right now in terms of the state of, of European energy? Yeah, the best way to describe the state right now is it's very fragile. And um, uh, how, do I just, how, how, do you, how do you describe that fragility? Well, we just have to look at the prices. So if I look at, um, I'm a present in Paris, power prices today in, in France are 550 euros a megawatt hour. The customer pays 250 euros a megawatt hour in, in France, right? And we've all, we've, unsurprisingly, you know, the French government has had to go in and nationalize its French utility, EDF, right? So that's like on one side you've got this, and I could go and show you, share prices of a whole pile of utilities and now Uniper, Fortum, all these share prices are down 20% or more since the beginning of the year. Again, something we never saw before. That's on the electricity side. And then you have to go to gas, right? And gas sort of was the start of the problem. And that was, we went back to spring of last year and what you saw is the Chinese buying a lot of gas in the market and the Koreans, Japanese reacted, price began to move up. And then eventually there was a shortfall in the market and gas prices exploded last year. Then we have the Ukrainian situation and suddenly we've got a whole pile of other stresses in the market. You know, are the questions going to cut the gas or not? And, and, and related to that then, other stresses, obviously in, in the food area as well, et cetera, et cetera. So we're li living in a, a state of heightened anxiety. That's the best way to describe the European energy landscape. I mean, as you said, this started last year. We were already seeing high prices, high volatility, even prior to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How, um, you know, were there Cassandras out there predicting this or does this just suddenly overtake boardrooms and, and the utilities, as you said? I mean, how predictable was this if we go back even a year or so? Well, actually, I go and start with, um, I go and start with sort of some of the energy consultants that, that are out there. Um, and their power price predictions. And what they've been doing is predicting for the last decade that power prices are gonna to go to zero. Well, obviously that's not the case, right? Power prices have gone the other way. But I would, I'm not gonna excuse what they've done, but what I would say is to understand it, you have to realize that we have been living in a, in a world the last 15 years of, of too much energy, right? So we've seen gas prices go down, with oil prices go down, electricity prices all across the world. And everybody's been spoiled by that, okay? And when you're spoiled by stuff like that, you don't think that, oh, actually, maybe there isn't as much oil out there as we think. Maybe, actually, 
you know, that there are problems with the French nuclear fleet that we didn't think about. It, that's what you've had. So you've had a whole pile of events that in particular impact Europe because of the fact that Europe does not really have its own supply of energy. So it has to import oil, gas, coal, as well as the other uh, commodities as well. So it puts it in a very frail situation, which is in contrast to say North America, where North America is got a, they've got a surplus of these uh, raw materials and they're benefiting from it. Okay, you may say the customer is not benefiting, but the producers are benefiting and, um, and obviously huge amount of LNG coming across in there, huge amount of coal, we're also seeing oil come across. So they're benefiting immensely from, from the situation. But as I said, Europe is stuck in, sort of stuck in the middle there really between Russia and the United States, I would say. And uh, we have the possibilities of a difficult winter in front of us. Mm. It's interesting. We've been in this long-term environment of the expectation of low prices around energy. You know, even risk management groups that on the on the on the procurement side in corporates have largely, you know, shrunk during that period. It's also been defined by a period of ever more interconnectivity between the different European states um, and legislation to follow that. George, can you just give us a sense from from your geopolitical risk hat? You know how you know how connected europe has become and then suddenly how how that might add to that fragility that uh, that gerard mentioned yeah sure i mean t- talking of gas i think gas is a major uh, tension point of tension today with russia uh, clearly using its uh, energy supplies as a, as a way to blackmail europe into making some decisions it doesn't want to make uh, on ukraine um so of course you have uh, this great dependency on russian gas in a number of member states um, so dependency, which is much, much higher um, uh, for gas than for oil. Um, they have Germany at the, the core of the problem with dependency uh, exceeding 50% uh, before the war. Uh, many other countries like Italy, France, Austria have been very, also very much exposed, Hungary, Slovakia. Um, so, um, I mean, it, when we have one, one, one supply that kind of sends the gas to, to the whole continent, uh, which then gets dispatched to various parts of Europe from the same countries, um, get they have problem at the gateways uh, if this uh, supply doesn't doesn't play ball doesn't play by the rules of the game, and I think what um, back to the question about whether anyone saw this coming I think um, this was not really in anyone's cards uh, last year because no one was really expecting the war uh, in Ukraine to to break up. We were still talking and there was this meeting between Biden and Merkel when she was leaving the office. There was this agreement with, the, with, the, with America to have um, a support for Ukraine in extending its supply contract with Gazprom beyond 2024. Everyone was kind of preparing for that, those negotiations. Gazprom was willing to, to discuss, at least, and as they say, on commercial terms, if Ukraine could, could agree to something that was acceptable to them. Um, and then suddenly, I mean, uh, in, 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 the, in the fall, they started um, supplying less gas, and there was uh, this... Uh, uh, whole debate about whether Gazprom was really not been, not able to supply more because of its uh, domestic injection needs, or that it was just you know, um, sending less than it could um, to have prices go up. And we have this war which disrupts everything, uh, and you know Gazprom is apparently willing to take commercial heat, financial heat, uh, because of um, uh, Putin's diplomacy vis-a-vis Europe. And we're potentially uh, facing, as Jura said, a very, very tough winter because of all those those dependency issues and their connectivity issues as well. Yeah. Um, Gerard, you're, you work uh, with utilities across Europe. Um, you know, is, is, is gas the, you know, 
is gas the problem or is power the problem? I know that's a very sort of facile question, but um, you know, is there the what, what do the utilities expect around gas? Is everyone planning for it to be turned off? And how does that weigh up against the challenge of, say, for example, the the nuclear fleet in in, in France not functioning to what it should be as well? well? Well, first and foremost, if you think what's what's happened across European energy desks, whether you're an oil company or a gas company or electricity company, they've actually been looking pretty locally at things. So their risks have always been local. And what I mean by that is nobody was thinking that, oh yeah, you could have gas prices at these levels uh, because nobody thought about it. They think only local. So if I'm trading power, I think, oh yeah, what's going on in France? What's going on in Germany? What's demand going to be? What's supply going to be? But they were not thinking of, well, actually, we might have problems on the gas side and there might well be that the Russians cut the gas off to us. There was no, nobody had this in their thinking as a except, and there are exceptions. And the exceptions are global commodity houses. And the global commodity houses, there's, and I won't go and name them, but there's global commodity houses have made a huge amount of money over the last 15 months because they understood before the utilities in particular, what was going on. And they were able to position themselves for this. And I suppose when you look back, I mean, the writing sort of was on the wall, right? I mean, you're, you're building up, you know, 250,000 strong army on a uh, on, on the border of a neighboring country. Plus that's a country where you've actually actually gone and invaded a few years prior. You would have sort of thought that's a bit of risk, but nobody in the in thought about this. And I, and I would actually go and I'd say, well, a large part of it also starts with the government. So, I mean, I looked at the German government uh, national gas crisis plan, um, three years old, and they did not mention Russia once in that document, right? So they didn't see it as a risk, okay? Mm. And that or was didn't sort of want what, to see it. or didn't want to see it. And that's what you saw across the whole uh, energy landscape. And that's now obviously radically changing because now you need to think globally. You need to think actually what is happening in China because that will impact coal, that will impact gas. And actually gas and coal are the price setter for electricity across the world, right? So it's not just the European prices are going up. You go and look in South Korea, prices are also going up there, right? So this is this is also a critical part of that is the, is the gas. Now, Europe's situation is very specific in the electricity market because we've got so many problems in the French, in, in the French nuclear fleet. I mean, you've got half the French nuclear fleet out. And I'll just give you a, a very simple statistic is that as we speak today, uh, French demand is about 50 gigawatts and there's 25 gigawatts of nuclear power capacity online. If we went back one year ago, there was close to 38 gigawatts of nuclear online in France. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means suddenly that France has to go and import power from its neighbors, mainly Germany, right? Yeah, a year ago, they were exporting a whole pile of power, right? And so that's like, that's really caused tightness in the market, which means you sort of go, okay, well, where am I gonna get the power from? You go and go, you put on a, the gas turbine, you put on all that, all that, that coal, uh, the coal power station, that's what's going on. And now what you've got is governments that are going, oh God, we've got real problems here, hey, not just in the gas market, but also in the power market. What are we going to do? And you see the German government, the Dutch government sort of saying, oh, we need to put coal plants on. Well, actually, the reason they need to put coal plants on is because there are problems in the nuclear fleet in France. And then to compound that, You've got, you know, the Germans closing off nuclear last year and wanting to close off more this year, right? Mm. So there's crazy things happen at the margin, and that's sort of what you're seeing in the power market in Europe, I would say. And you've alluded to there, 
obviously the trading houses, the global commodity trading houses, you know, had the had the capacity of global reach, global intelligence to be able to piece some of these trades together. And also you're talking there about obviously, you know, France having to go to Germany for power and that interconnectivity of Europe. All of that is predicated on the fact that markets function and are traded, freely traded as well. And that seems to be under attack as well, whether you've got issues of volatility and a lot of those trading houses face liquidity challenges during that period because the volatility was so high. Um, but you've also got protectionist um, you know, policies coming in about not, not exporting your power you know, from the Scandinavian countries, et cetera, in these times of crisis. George, can you, are we, is the current um, market structure for energy and beyond in Europe under threat as a result of these crises? Well, well, definitely. I think it's part of uh, also the broader deglobalization trend, which we're seeing elsewhere in the world, although it's kind of a very controversial term and you know, many people disagree that there is this globalization happening. Some say it's just you know, fragmenting uh, a bit further, but uh, the world is still globalized. Uh, I mean, of, of course, uh, when, when just look at the um, sanctions against Russia. I mean, look at the oil embargo, look at what uh, um, has been proposed, uh, you know, potential long term for, you know, for gas, just many, not bargaining gas, but um, reducing dependency on Russian gas. Uh, it looks like, uh, at least if you look at Eurasia, that um, there is a clear you know, fault line between Europe and Russia right now emerging, where uh, Russia was going to, will it, um, well, kind of against its own will, potentially, you know, because it really doesn't really like this scenario, will have to divert uh, flows, oil flows, at least seaborne oil flows from Europe. Also trying to ramp up gas supplies to China. We've seen that those figures uh, uh, recently uh, when a Gazprom was pumping really record capacity to China through the force of Siberia pipeline, uh, while it was retaining supplies to Europe. Uh, so oil will also go away um, incrementally, especially when the embargo kicks in at the end of the year and for oil products uh, February next year. You, you have seen a ban on Russian coal imports as well, and the UK is joining the embargoes today uh, on Russian oil, coal, etc. So there is, I think there is a clear kind of um, fragmentation here happening. And uh, as we saw, Germany was um, has started to talk to various suppliers across the world. They're talking to Qatar, uh, be talking, be talking to Algerians, been revolving talks with Azerbaijanis, etc. So trying to find alternatives to Russian gas, um, which, which kind of disrupts the whole um, supply system, which has been in place for decades, uh, where Russia has been the linchpin of that, especially also with an eye to, uh, on energy transition, because uh, gas has been seen as um, a fuel that can kind of um, accelerate this transition to renewables, uh, while being less put in the coal and potentially other fuels, but still kind of uh, a transition uh, step, uh, which, which Russia was willing, willing to to uh, help with, and now it's all kind of breaking up and going away. Mm. And then, Gerard, within Europe, I mean, if you're a, a power trader, do you have long-term confidence that the markets are going to continue to operate the way they have? Uh, I'd actually already say that the power markets are broken before this, but actually what this, um, what's actually happened now is it's shown really um, how broken they are. <laughs> Um, and let me let me try and answer that in in two ways. One is the good news is the power markets are doing what they're what they should be doing, which is they're making sure that we've got twenty four seven power, and we have we've had no blackout whatsoever across Europe. Okay, we've seen spikes in prices. Okay, but it, the the power markets are working. I would be very very concerned if a government thinks they can do a better job than all those different parties of experts who are competing with each other 
in a market and have been doing it for, for, for so long, right? So I hope we don't go down the route of, you know, of governments trying to actually nationalize and prevent power flows, energies it flows across borders. And I give you a very simple example of this is, and it's a win-win. So let's assume worst case scenario, Germany says, okay, we're gonna just keep our power for ourselves. Okay, so France will have blackouts in January. Okay, so there's no doubt in my mind. Now, but let's assume France says, well, well, we don't want our gas going to Germany. Exact same situation, right? So my hope is that what we have to do is realize that the solution is not to nationalize. The solution is to make sure that actually we cooperate in Europe with each other right across the board. It's the only way we can get through the next period of time. Now, that's, that's what I say to that. Now, what, let me just talk about what's going on in the power markets. The power markets are very specific. I'm an economist, a failed economist, uh, or a recovering economist. And basic microeconomics tells you that if you want to have a functioning market, you have to have a large amounts of buyers and sellers, and they need to, there needs to be flexibility on them. We, and what, what we talk about is what we have on the, in the power markets is we don't have that. We've got large amounts of buyers and sellers on the supply side, but on the demand side, no flexibility whatsoever. So what we have is an inelastic price curve. Well, guess what happens in an inelastic price curve, demand curve? What you get is massive volatility. That's what you've got in the market. And why I say this is a forerunner to what happens in the future, if you put more and more renewables on the system, what you'll have is you will have, and we certainly have it already, you'll have days when they're negative prices. And you sort of go, well, who's going to build a power station when you know that on a summer day you're going to get no revenue for it? You might have to pay someone to take it. That's the environment we're going into. The only way you can solve that is to flexibilize the demand side. And that requires a huge thinking, uh, a change in thinking in terms of how the uh, energy markets work. And if we do that, then we'll actually have a properly functioning power market, which is suited and will give uh, to the future, uh, our clean energy future, but it also will give us the proper price signals that we need to make investments. But if we don't do that, we're just gonna be asking governments for subsidies in this energy space for the next 20 years, right? Mm. I mean, and, and it, it strikes me that whether you're talking about sort of flexible demand, smart meters, and all the behaviors that go around that, whether it's getting gas from the Azeris, et cetera, you know, none of these are short-term fixes whatsoever. Um, you started the segment, Gerard, by saying, you know, it's gonna be a difficult winter. I mean, can you just help us understand how difficult it could be? What does that look like? You know, what are some of the, the potential scenarios that you see? Yeah, well, well first and foremost, I, 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 even if the Russians cut the gas tomorrow, we will get through the winter without any form of blackouts, right? And I say blackouts from the gas side, heating side, and from the electricity side. To do that, we have to make sure that the Europe, as Europeans, that, we, that each country is cooperating with each other and we're helping each other, right? That's, that's number one, the number one thing I would say. Now, the question then is, how do you do that? Well, I think the other thing that we were doing at present, which I don't think is helpful, is we're creating panic among customers. Customers are seeing prices go through the roof and they're looking and they're hearing, oh my God, we're gonna have blackouts. We're gonna have no heating in the, in, 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 in the winter. That's not helpful. Actually, much more helpful is to actually go out and say, well, customers, this is what we need you to do. We need you to, you know, Stop driving on Sunday. We need you to you know, lower your thermostat temperature by two degrees. Give really practical steps to be, give them the tools to be able to do something so they feel empowered 
that they can be part of the solution for this, right? And by the way, we did this back in the 70s in the oil crisis. This is what we did. No government has done this, right? In fact, they've done the exact opposite. They've actually gone and said, okay, we're going to subsidize you on that diesel. That expensive diesel that you have? No, 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 no. We're, we're going to take the VAT off that. Oh, no, no, we're going to give you this. That's not helpful whatsoever, right? And I, I, I would really like governments uh, just to be open and honest with people and then give them measures to go get through this situation, right? And don't get me wrong, I know there's a, a fuel poverty situation and I'll help those people. But if I take the case of Norway, they just gave a subsidy to every single person who's buying electricity in the country. Well, why? You know, what's the point in doing that? It's not helpful. Yeah. Um, and I should say that we are going to welcome uh, questions in the chat as well from, from our audience. And we can, anyone we don't get to during the session, we can get to at the end. You talked there, uh, Gerard, about European cooperation. You know, uh, um, George, maybe you can give us a sense of how likely that is. We're already seeing some long-standing European politics, you know, Draghi, et cetera, resigning today. You know, so there is some changing of the order there. Is there the appetite within Europe for that cooperation? Is that seen by, um, by the politicians uh, and by the people themselves? Well, I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to really assess right now because we've, we've been seeing in recent months and you very aptly said, we've seen a lot of panicking uh, of the European politicians. And I suppose the governments are not really willing to impose tough measures on the population, which would consist in, like Jura said, maybe diminishing, reducing the heating, uh, household heating, maybe, maybe taking transport less frequently, driving their cars less frequently. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it's, they're, they're they're probably more willing to at this stage take on the additional cost of subsidizing expensive energy rather than making people change their behaviors. I think it's partly due to the fact that COVID was a pretty tough time for everyone, and people are really worried about having to follow another harsh discipline after just two years of COVID uh, lockdowns. Uh, in terms of political stability, I think everything really depends on that. Um, if there are uh, people in place in a high in high power in key European democracies, uh, like uh, Germany, France, Italy, if they can hold together um, coalition governments, if they can uh, ensure stability domestically, will be a way to co collaborate and to have dialogue. But what we've seen now is really quite worrisome from my point of view, quite troubling, because we've seen problems in France with the election of um, recent elections uh, in the to the French National Assembly. Uh, which were not won by uh, Macron's party, Macron's coalition, um, which kind of suggests there will be a period of um, uh, deadlock uh, among uh, French political parties going forward. We've seen problems with, in Italy with Draghi's government um, becoming caretaker government and not being, being able to uh, take any drastic steps that Italy needs right now, being one of the most energy dependent countries in Europe and also very, very, a very high budget deficit, lots of economic uh, problems it has to deal with. Uh, and we also see um, problems in Germany, where the industry is saying that uh, if gas is cut off, it will not be able to survive. There must be a way to, you know, to, to accommodate Russia in some ways. Uh, the government is not really able to find the compromise solution because it needs to support Ukraine and the population is clearly on the side of Ukraine. So I think we're going into very difficult times. It's, it's all very much dependent on whether Europe can, can keep stability at home. Um, I mean, not really the Brussels people, people who are in the commission, but really people uh, in the capitals, various European uh, countries, uh, key, key countries in Europe, if they can stay, keep stability in place, they will probably be able to cooperate. If not, they will certainly be driven by domestic concerns more than by European concerns. Yeah. Um, Gerard, any comments on that? Oh, I, I agree totally. Absolutely. I agree totally. Um, I just, as I said, I, my major thing is I hope 
we we keep together because if we don't keep together we're in big trouble right because the alternative is not good right but i will say one thing i did say we can get through this winter we can't get through the winter after that without russian gas i mean that's a fact we cannot get through the winter after without russian gas so if the russians cut the gas tomorrow yeah we'll get through it we'll probably end up in april with we, we we'll end up with basically no gas in our storage facilities um but then to try and fill that up by the next year, you can't do it. And I say that as a fact, right? That's a fact. Um, and you can build an LNG facility, um, floating LNG and whatever, you still won't get it in. You still won't get the stuff in. And that's, that's, that's the reality of where we're at. I, I like the German phrase, realpolitik. That's what it is. At some point, you're going to have to face that reality, right? Mm. It's, it's one thing we haven't discussed yet, but plays crucial, critically into that discussion of, of electorates and, and holding together with the with centrist moderate you know, pro-european parties is of course that at its root food is is energy um and uh you know we are the consequence of the energy crisis around the world or you know when the last time we saw it is, is triggering food inflation at massive scale so is russia's invasion of ukraine whether that's sanctions on fertilizers and other key inputs or whether it's just disruption to grain markets and we're already seeing that free global ag trade very much in the hands of private companies being disrupted by government policies. You know, it doesn't take too much of a leap. You know, I think it's uh, the phrase is 12 days to madness. You know, if, if, if food starts getting shut off or prices just really start to rocket there, that would have a profound impact, not only well, on European stability and beyond, right? And we can see that still starting to be teased in places like Sri Lanka and so forth. Um, you know, George, how how is that on the minds of you know of of european governments you know how recognizes this as a real you know threat to you know beyond the energy crisis yeah i think uh, i would say that in my opinion uh, it's not really taken into consideration as much as it should um i think currently europe is looking inwardly trying to deal with its own problems and rather nationally than uh, uh, in in a pan european way uh, i'm really i'm really um kind of uh, fearful of a potential uh, migration uh, crisis happening again uh, in Europe as in 20, I think 2012, where millions of people moving to Europe from places affected by war. So this time we have a real risk of hunger and social unrest, um, you know, taking over a number of countries in the Middle East and North Africa because of the food crisis. We've seen some some negotiations happening between Turkey um, uh, and Russia regarding the food crisis in the in Ukraine, so how to take grain out of Ukraine, along protected and, and safe, you know, uh, channels uh, in the in the Black Sea, uh, guarded by uh, Ukrainian warships, and how Turkey can expect the warships to ensure that they not carry weapons back to Ukraine. So Russia is apparently agreeing to that solution, but it's still in the works. And inflation is really rising, um, food inflation is rising in many countries across uh, the developing world. Uh, I don't think this has been taken seriously in, enough in Europe. And um, if this happens again, this will add additional strain on European finances, on European you know, stability, and on the ability of Europe to come together to face the, the common challenges this, this coming winter. So I really think that this is something which is very geopolitically driven today, and geopolitics is really disrupting the whole market more than, more than uh, ever before, I would say. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. 
with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Are you on that? Are you seeing an appetite grow? Because a key part to this, to solving the winter, is obviously finding a peaceful resolution, as unpalatable as that might be to you know, the protagonists um, in, in Ukraine. Um, and allowing, obviously, the you know winding back of sanctions and so forth. Are you seeing a growing appetite in Europe and beyond to push for for a solution in Ukraine, or is there is it? No, I, d- I don't think so. I think it's really a deadlock situation for the time being. Um, clearly, see Russia uh, moving um, westward in Ukraine, really trying to capture as much ground as possible. And they're apparently setting up referendums in a number of provinces in Ukraine in the east and south, southeast to take more territory away from Ukraine. I think Vladimir Putin is really betting on European disunity and really hoping that there will be more trouble in, in more European countries going forward, closer to the winter season. Uh, and that maybe at that crunch time, Europe will be more willing to accommodate Russian, Russian demands. But Russia is saying very explicitly, as time goes by, we're going to ask for more concessions from you. So the same that will not be the same thing as you know in, in March, in March, April. So Ukraine will have to agree to more concessions and which is not going to, to, to make, of course. Um, it's really deadlock uh, for the time being. And Gazprom has really been used uh, more aggressively than before as an energy weapon. Um, they're really willing to take a financial heat to, the, to their balance sheet to be able to promote Russia's interests in this very pernicious way, where you just cut off gas for no, for no, for no legitimate reason. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I want to move on to managing the risk and the volatility, you know, um, present in the market. And there's a question in the chat about this role of, of speculators and, and leverage speculation at that. Um, I, and I want you to take that on, Gerard. But before we move forward, there is a you've triggered some comment in the chat as well, um, asking for a bit more definition about why it's a fact that Europe won't survive a second winter without Russian gas. Because you can't replace the supply that you get from Russia through other sources in that period of time. It's really simple. So what you would have to do is put in extreme measures on the demand side. Um, and extreme measures mean that you're closing industry, right? So you could do that, but it's you're putting us into a really, really severe recession, right? And, and, uh, and almost even a depression because a recession is two quarters of negative growth but I, I could, you could see six quarters, eight quarters of negative growth to try and get through it. So at, I'm, I'm also making a point as well, is that at some point, you're going to have to go and, and negotiate with the Russians, right? And, 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 and the longer we don't do that, the worse this crisis is going to become. Because what actually happens with every day that goes on, the Russians play a little bit more, but as we lose more trust in them, and you, you, you know, we, we begin to do things that have unintended consequences. And, for example, you're, we're talking about the whole financial risk in and around commodities. This was an unintended consequence. People had, no, governments had no idea. They were thinking about, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's all about getting the commodities in, no problem whatsoever. But actually, the risk was, and still is to a certain extent, is in and around that you actually have a financial crisis, right? If you have a, a, an exchange that blows up, or you have a, a big, an oil company blowing up because 
of the fact that it's you know it's got some financial issues on the hedging side then you're in trouble and we we sort of see that now governments are recognizing that um but you also have the difficult situation where if you're a bank you do have a lender of last resort which is called a central bank and mm. they come in and bail you out the traders don't have this yeah and there's no direct monetary policy that can affect uh, yeah, energy trading markets. How, how taking that then, and I do want to come back on that point about uh, negotiating with Russia and, you know, obviously there's, there's incentives for Russia now to look elsewhere to put their gas into Asia and, you know, Europe still has that long-term need to, to, to wean themselves off it potentially. Um, but managing risk and volatility, Gerard, you, know, you have this, we've got utilities, you know, whose trading groups are doing very well in this volatile environment, but the, 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 the holding company or the, the, the utility behind them is on a knife edge. You know, can you just give us some sense of how challenging that trading environment is? You know, how both utilities, merchants, but also corporates, you know, I mean, there's suddenly now front and center of boardrooms is how do you manage your price risk around the energy that you're consuming to make your, your widgets or whatever it might be? Well, just give a very simple example, right? Is that what you've got is Gazprom, Uniper, and Eon. Gazprom sells the gas to Uniper. Uniper creates electricity out of it and also sells that gas to other people. Gazprom's contract with Uniper is they basically get a discount to the market price. Now, Eon on the other side just wants to buy power at a fixed price. And what they do is they come up with an agreement between Eon and, U and, and Uniper at 53 euros. I think that's what they're, that, 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 that is what they're hedged for this year. So they're getting power at 53 euros. So how the hell can Uniper supply power to them at 53 euros when they're buying the gas at this you know, crazy price from Gazprom? Well, what they've done is they put a financial hedge in place. And this hedge means that although they, 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 the amount that they're paying in cash to Gazprom, they're also from their hedge getting gas cash to that, that hedge to make up that difference. That's what's going on. Now, that's all very well until you have massive volatility because when you have massive volatility, what you then have to do is guarantee your customer that I can supply them. That's what happens. And I'm paying money through an exchange to that customer or directly, maybe in the case of, uh, of Gazprom Uniper. And the numbers that we're talking about are ginormous and you could well be that you have a margin call on a Friday and you've got three hours to deliver 10 billion. Um, where are you going to get 10 billion, right? That you're not set up to do it. You have to go to a board and say to a board, the board hasn't a clue. He's going, what do you mean? You know, we, we, we've got an agreement to sell them gas and our electricity at 53 euros. And now you're telling me I, I have to go give them, I have to give them money as well. I mean, so there's a, even at the boardroom level, the lack of understanding of what was going on there has made it different. Now they've had to wake up to it. But what you've had is uh, numerous situations where uh, we've had emergency bailouts for LEAG, German utility, um, south of Berlin. We've had it for Uniper. Um, and, and the reason is exactly because of these margin calls, right? Um, and that's like, these are system, system relevant. We have to make sure we cannot afford these guys to go down. And, and this is again, very, very difficult. The whole Gazprom trading business in, in the UK you have to think of it like who hedges all this up. If you really think of it, the guy who's probably hedging everything on the demand and supply is actually Gazprom because they have they're the guys that had the at the gas in the first place, right? And even through all these financial derivatives, then it all really ultimately probably goes back to Gazprom and Ecuador and a few of these others. That's a pretty scary situation because when these things try to unwind, 
you can cause a financial crisis. And, I, and I, the, the number that we sort of came up with is you have a thousand billion, one trillion worth of contracts that are across Europe in this area. And that's why also we're playing this game with Russia, which is Russia is saying, well, you know, technical reasons, it's a turbine, right? And we don't want to cut off the gas to them because, you know, then they're going to sue us. Uh, or actually what will end up happening, crazy situation is Uniper will sue the German government if the German government cut off, cut off the gas from Russia. If Russia cuts off the gas to Uniper, Uniper will sue Russia, right? And, and I mean, I know these will drag on for 10 years, 15 years after the war, but that's where you're at. That's why everybody's going, please, please don't, don't do this. And then you've got chemical companies like BSF who have gas contracts way below the, the, the market price. So they're praying to God, please, please keep delivering, please keep delivering, right? So it's yeah. just very difficult, very stressful for everybody in the market, right? Volatility is not good. No, no. We recently did an episode on the podcast, the HC Insider podcast, on systemic risk. Quite scary. George, do you, is there a? Are you seeing a sense at the at the board level, across the political level, of a recognition that this could have a systemic impact on the broader financial markets and really be, you know, a catastrophic uh, event? Should a, an exchange go down? You know, should one of these large market participants that may have these you know, an unseen but incredible relevance to the amount of contracts out there, you know, themselves go down. Yeah, I think certainly the corporate sector is worried and they understand the risks they're facing. Uh, we haven't seen, I haven't seen at least for my part, any statements uh, of this kind from regulators, from public authorities about, you know, apart from bailouts of specific companies, whether they could come up with specific measures to maybe support uh, in a commodities exchange or, you know, uh, maybe a trading house uh, which is facing uh, facing uh, reckoning for its you know failed bets on, on the markets. Um, I think definitely the the fear is there in, in the broader society, in the broader corporate sector. Um, and everyone understands that uh, you know we've been buying Russian gas. We're talking about gas for you know for something for some some very low price you know under long term supply contracts for years, and then suddenly you have to buy on the spot market. Uh, it's a very huge difference, differential to what you used to buy. This creates a lot of problems for you, accumulating losses, accumulating, uh, you know, uh, liabilities to your clients. And then uh, suddenly you may be up for billions of dollars uh, in losses and you know, margin calls. So I think the corporate sector is really very uh, sanguine about this. They're pragmatic. They're, they're trying to find some solutions. They're trying to lobby the governments for some maybe change of policy and maybe uh, a new uh, uh, approach to Russia, to Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, whereas on the government side, I think there is really this problem of reconciling the situation in Europe right now with what they can really realistically offer to Russia, to Vladimir Putin, to make the, them change their behavior in Ukraine, because what they're doing is just you know, pursuing at all costs, despite all the sanctions, uh, just facing the beast, but they're, they're willing to go in and you know, make Europe pay for it as they've seen publicly through some of their spokespeople, like the former president, Medvedev, who's very you know, outspoken about the West. They're saying clearly that Europe will have to pay the price uh, for its you know, short-sightedness and for following the US lead in Ukraine without being able to uh, pursue an autonomous policy. Uh, so I think this really, Jubilee speaking, it's, it's a tough situation. There is probably little room for maneuver in terms of finding common ground with the Russians and Ukraine. And um, I think the fear is clearly in the, in, in, there in Europe, but um, whether the gov governments will be able to, to step in and provide financial assistance, I'm not really sure about whether this will can happen and, and to what extent, uh, given they the already coping with inflation, you know, 
uh, and tr not not doing it very successfully, unfortunately. Yeah, and and you mentioned um, you also mentioned there sort of lobbying governments for for potential support. We've seen letters to the ECB, etc. Gerard, do you think we walk out of this with a changed regulatory environment on the participants in the commodity markets? I, I hope to, I hope we do. I hope we do, Paul. Um, I do. I really do. I think I think there's room for improvement across it. And I do want to make a point that, and I, I saw one of the questions here around speculators. Speculators, let's not call them that. Let's call them actually what they are as market participants. And why do I say that? Is because they have an incredibly important role in the market. And what they do is they're looking for inefficiencies. And they get that inefficiency before other people do, which means that they're, they're like a wake-up call to the market, to the situation that's going on. And they serve an incredibly important need in terms of being able to hedge and all that type of stuff. So I just want to want to say that if you if you get rid of these people out of the market by say nationalizing the gas the gas union and having a, a regulator decides what to do, I think that is just a, a recipe for disaster in this really 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 complicated world. And so that's that's what I say. Number one, I hope that doesn't happen. But there's definitely room for improvement in regulations, and in particular the power market. It's and I and I give you a very very simple example of this. In, you know, there's a whole pile of countries across Europe who have what's called feed-in tariffs. So in other words, that is you're getting a fixed price for your power, your solar, or your wind for a period of 20 years. Well, if today you're getting a feed-in tariff from the German government for 40 euros for uh, solar for, for 20 years, you're, you're building it right now. You just put it online. You're not going to take the German government tariff. You're going to take the 200 euros that's in the power market every day. You go, well, why are you allowing them to do this? Why? Because somebody has to pay for that. What, you know, you've got an investor who says, I'm willing to take 40 euros for the next 20 years, and you're allowing them to take 200 euros per customer or per, per, per megawatt hour? That's crazy. So we've got stuff like that, which is just not intelligent. I use a German example, but it's also across other countries the same thing. Um, and I know energy regulation is complex, but we really, really have to take a very systemic view of what we want to do in terms of energy going forward, because this transition we're going through, it's enormous. And to change an energy system, whether it's from going from horse and car to, 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 to an automobile, or what we're trying to do by you know, decarbonizing, it's a ginormous challenge. So that means we need to think of it in a different way. And if we don't do that, we're in big trouble, right? Yeah. Because it will just lead to financial disaster, right? It I don't, I don't want to get your blood up, Gerald, but my next question is really the role of energy transition in this, right? You know, we've obviously, you know, part of the background to this is, and this has been going a lot longer in Europe than, say, the North America, but certainly COVID was an accelerator of the recognition of the need for energy transition. Um, you know, there's been these long-standing supportive policies to build renewables into the European power grid. Um, but can energy transition survive what's going on at the moment? You know, in when we look at balance, the need of energy security and food you know, security against energy transition, at least in the popular mind, sometimes those two things are antithetical. Okay, so, so listen, for me, it all goes back to economics. And um, the reality is right now, as we speak, the economics of fossil fuels don't work. They're just too expensive. Whether it's oil, gas, coal, whatever is burning that is why we have high prices, okay? So logically, you sort of go and look for alternatives. And I'll give you a very simple, practical example on the electricity system. 
I have solar on my rooftop at home. I generated at 10 cents a kilowatt hour. That's the cost of levelized over the lifetime of the, of the asset. I paying 35 euro cents um, for my electricity in the grid. So I go, well, why would I do that? I could put a battery in, oversize the solar system. And guess what? It cost me an extra 10 cent. Now I'm not hundred percent off the grid, but where I'm coming from, I give you an idea. I'm suddenly moved from 0% generation to uh, own generation to basically 50% generation, right? And I've done that because of economics. I'm not doing it for any other reasons, pure economics. Um, and, I, and if you look back in the history of any form of transition, it's the lowest cost that wins, right? And I look and I use the example of solar, it's the lowest cost. And it's also the simplest system to put in place. You and me could do, build a solar park tomorrow, right? Without being in, needing mm. to be an engineer. Okay, it's that simple and it's getting easier and it can be small, quicker, and the, and the innovation in the area is massive. And I sort of say, well, actually, it's also obvious that it should come from the sun because the fossil fuels come from that as well, right? And by the way, I'm not saying, that, and I'm going to be clear, I'm not saying we're not, we don't need the fossil fuels. I'm just saying that the transition is going to go there now because of economics and now because of geopolitics. Because from a European perspective, do I really want to continue having this dependency? on Russia going forward. No, I don't. So what's the alternative, right? You can buy LNG from the US, that's great. We're trying to do that. You see what's happening. BSF and German industry will not survive against American industry going forward because the cost of LNG importing is just too high, right? So you sort of say, I'll go and do alternatives. So economics and geopolitics, I think are the big drivers of energy transition going forward. And don't get me wrong, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a straight road. It's going to be a bumpy road. There's going to be mistakes made. But I, 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 I think it's going to be the most exciting sort of 10 years in the energy space since probably the beginning of the 19th century, right? Or 20th and, century, and, not 19th, 20th century, 20th century. It strikes me when you say that what the bit that's missing is your ability to sell the power back to the grid when you're, you know, not at home, you know, and coming back to that flexible load side or the flexible demand piece. Um, just to follow up with you, Gerald, are you, are you seeing that... Is that currently in front of legislatures? Is that in front of regulators? Or are we still far off solving the demand side, which seems to unlock a lot of these challenges that the faces in oh, terms of- we're, we're, still far, we're still far away, right? So there are certain countries that are more advanced than others, but let's take the example of Germany, right? There's no smart meters in Germany. And what that means is, well, if there's no smart meters, then you can't measure on a real-time basis electricity flows in the system, right? And that means you also can't offer flexible pricing to people. Now that's at the residential level. The large industry does that, but the residential, and I use that word really on the, and I'm not seeing anybody talk about this. I'm hearing governments talk about the need for power market reform and get gas out of the system. And, and um, But actually that's not the biggest issue. And the biggest issue is create a market structure that allows lots of flexibility to exist. And we, we haven't got that. That's on the power side, I would say, right? Yeah. Um, this question in the chat there, um, I guess to, to you, George, is obviously at the energy transition, there are concerns that many, the vast majority of the components, whether it's solar panels or whatever it might be, are currently manufactured in China. Does this just shift dependency for Europe from Russia and historical fossil fuel providers to to China and, and cause another set of challenges? Well, potentially, yes. That's why you need to have a mix of renewables, not only solar, but uh, various kinds of energy that can be used to 
um, to satisfy your needs. Uh, well, effectively, China is a big player in the industry, and we've seen some problems with you know some suppliers uh, that buy equipment that buy sorry materials from China, like uh, even from Xinjiang. You know problems around that because this area is originally China, mm-hmm. sanctioned by Western governments. Uh, this needs to be very you know systemic approach uh, because of course it can create new dependencies. What we will be dangerous for you like you know what, what's what's the if you have let's say uh, more lng flowing from qatar um well you should keep this share of gas uh proportionate to you know to other suppliers again i think the purpose is really to diversify diversify away from one supplier to to many suppliers different suppliers you can have uh, lng supplies you can have renewables you have all other different types of energy plus demand demand uh driven you know uh, changes where people you know, adapt their livelihoods to, to new circumstances. This should create um, a propitious environment for uh, these structural reform. But of course, replacing China with uh, a rush with China is not a solution. So it should not be really pursued such. Paul, may I jump in on that? Yes, please. I just, so my comment on this is as follows. One is the, the advantage of actually uh, of China is the fact that you, if I build a solar park and I'm using solar panels from China, it's going to produce electricity for 25 years, right? Completely different if I've got a, a gas situation where I have to buy the gas on a daily basis from Russia, probably for the next 25 years. So that's the advantage. But I do want to also talk about China. And we have to learn a little bit from the Chinese. The Chinese dominate solar production, lithium-ion battery production. Why do they do this? Because they are strategic. And they really decided, you know, these are strategic energy technologies that we have to dominate. That's, that's what they've made. In Europe, we have not made any of these decisions. We are not linking our industrial policy into energy policy and national security. And that's my hope that we begin to do this, right? And if I go back, 1913, before the start of the First World War, British government passes a bill for the formation of BP, okay? That's energy policy industrial policy and national security together. And we have to do the same in Europe. And if we don't do it, well, you know, then I suppose we're, we're just going to become the Disneyland of the world going forward, right? Because, you know, we will have no competitive advantage in anything, right? Mm. Yes, yeah, BP linked to the uh, dreadnoughts, uh, so <laughs> the context. But um, uh, that is, yeah, and as you say, China, that's been a 10-year policy and 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 you know and is now absolutely bearing fruit. They're doing the same in mobility. Even today, they announced the launch of an autonomous driving car, a taxi, etc. So there is definitely a catch up there, and we are seeing that start to infiltrate sort of the um, political thinking both in North America and Europe. But it's a it's a heavy lift, you know, building your own supply chains up. Um, like going back to the immediacy and, and time to wrap up. I mean, last word to you, Gerard. Can you just, I guess. It's unfair to ask you to make predictions about prices, but can you just give us some sense of what you see the next six months potentially holding for the European energy markets? Okay, well, well let's go through the go, go through the different commodities if you want. Oil demand is going to fall off across the world, so you'd expect oil prices to come down. So you know, they're, they're, but I I can imagine it sort of being in the range between ninety dollars and one hundred and ten dollars. That's that's what I could see with oil, right? There's definitely shortages still in diesel and gasoline. Um, we're taking, Europe has taken 750,000 barrels a day of diesel in from Russia. So you can imagine diesel prices and gasoline prices where 
It's just we don't have the refining capacity. I can imagine them staying high at these high levels. They're not, not almost at not all time highs. If I look at the gas price, well, listen, the US gas price, the European gas price are completely different. The US gas price is only going to go up because they're exporting to us. And the question was, what happens with us? Well, that's all to do with Mr. Putin, right? How he plays with us over the next few months. But what's clear is gas prices are, are here to stay at higher levels, right? I, I would say that. Electricity prices across Europe, they are definitely going to stay high. And the reason is the nuclear issue in France. As I said, you just, you know, when you're seeing prices of 500 euros on a day where, yeah, where, where there's not, they're not, you know, the French don't have the heating systems on. You sort of look and go, oh, God, we're going to have problems come January. And uh, if we have a cold winter, I can imagine power prices being very high. That's what I would say. I think there's just there's there's no way around this. And then, of course, there is wild cards in this. The wild cards in this is that, you know, governments begin to go their own way. And as you said, the Norwegians suddenly say, well, we're just going to keep our power for ourselves. We're not going to send it over to you. If that happens, then prices just go through the through the roofs. And you, I could imagine then you're going to see nationalization of almost of this industry, right? And I hope that doesn't happen. I think that would be a disaster. But that could also be the worst case scenario, right? We all just go back to fighting for ourselves and you forget about your neighbors, right? Yeah. And, and as you said, George, uh, if, if in the short term everything hinges on Mr. Putin, uh, there seems to be a desire there to make Europe pay and, uh, and little desire in a, a peaceful resolution. Indeed. Well, I really want to thank our panellists. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, Gerard Reed, uh, co-founder and partner at Alexa Capital and host, I should say, of the excellent podcast, The Redefining Energy and George Voloshin, head of the Paris branch at Aperio Intelligence. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.